good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. We're turning once more to Nehemiah. Uh, tonight to the ninth chapter, verses 1 uh, through 3, and then skip over towards the end of the chapter and read some verses at the end of the chapter as well. Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. Another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And then what follows really is a uh, somewhat detailed uh, survey of the history of the people of God from Abraham uh, on through into the, the promised land and and then you read on the verse number 30, and again it's a, it's a summary verse. Yet many years didst thou forbear them, and testified against them by thy spirit in thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear? Therefore givest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keepeth covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little upon thee, that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people, since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Howbeit, thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, or princes, or priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies, wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou givest them. And in the large and fat land which thou givest before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou givest unto your fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal Unto it. In studying Nehemiah, we have been giving much consideration to the work of the people of God. We've been seeing a people who have a mind to work. We've admired their determination that despite persecution and opposition, they would keep on going on for God. And yet, whilst we spend some time thinking about the people's work, we should understand afresh that the main focus must be upon the fact that God is at work in these pages. This book that details much of the work of God's people is a book 
that reverberates with the sound of God being at work. That fact is itself a remarkable thing. The people of God had persistently rebelled and rejected the Lord. Again, you have that uh, summary survey from verse 4 all the way through to uh, the verse number uh, 31. And at the end of that summary survey, you have this testimony. Yet many years didst thou forbear them, yet would they not give ear. A rebellious people who rejected the Lord and committed sins against the law of God. Such a people were cast into captivity. Again, verse 30. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Due to their sin, God, God sends the people into captivity for a time. And yet God is at work. The ancestors of that people have now come out of the land. And they do so because God is at work. The walls, they have been built because God is at work. The word of God has been read and obeyed, chapter 8, only because God is at work. And yet, we are seeing God at work in a place and in a people, a rebellious people, a wicked people, who would not cease or would not, sorry, cease in the rebellion against God, and yet God has not abandoned his people. God is at work here in a people who were not expecting it and who did not deserve it. Now, I'm not denying, I'm not denying a portion of scripture like 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We have this responsibility to humble ourselves, to pray and to seek God's face. Yet the truth of Nehemiah the truth of other parts of the word of God, the truth of God's working in history is that when people get to the point where they're seeking God, God has already been at work. It's a sign of God at work when we begin to humble ourselves and seek the face of God. And that's what we ought to hope for today. That God will come in sudden, unexpected and undeserved revival blessing. We long for that. We pray for that. As a people, we don't deserve it. As a people, we can't work it up. It is the sovereign work of God to come and bless us in his own time and for his own pleasure. This chapter marks the point when the people of God, they seek the face of God. You have the petition there in verse number 32. Let not all the trouble seem little before thee. That's the prayer. God, take note of our affliction. Verse 37, we are in great distress. And this chapter marks the point where they come to, to seek the face of God. And yet before that, we have the setting of the atmosphere and a lengthy prelude to the prayer itself. And the chapter can be divided into three sections. There is sorrow, verses 1 to 3. There's a survey, verse 40 through 31. And the supplication that follows in verse 32 through to the end. It is a time when God is at work in the heart of his people. So to begin with, please note the sorrow. Uh, the sorrow that is a display of heart repentance. I've already mentioned the subject of 
revival tonight. This is, in a sense, a revival of God's work. The people where they were dead, there was no life in them, and God comes and breathes and revives them for his name's sake and for their good. There are two things that always mark the work of God in revival. And there may be other things, but when you consider the word of God and the history of the church, every revival truly called is marked by these two things. And there is the powerful preaching of the word of God. Seen often in men who knew little in the way of results. And suddenly, unexpectedly, they were seeing souls won for the Lord. Ezra had already for some time been back in the promised land. He'd been studying the law. And yet unexpectedly in chapter 8, the people of God have a renewed burden for the book. Bring us the book. And Ezra suddenly sees results that he had not known heretofore. So it happens in revival. Men who had been faithful, often faithful in preaching the word of God, but with little outward effect, suddenly... They see the blessing of God attending their ministry and souls are one for the Lord. There is a renewed hunger for the word. The preaching of the word, it takes a, it takes a prominence in the lives of God's people that it did not have before. We need to pray for that. Pray that God would give us such times in our days. But all alongside, or sorry, alongside this powerful preaching of the word, there is a profound sorrow for sin. These two marks are always closely connected. As we'll see here, it is the word of God that produces the conviction of sin. And in revival, in true revival, contrition for sin is always present and is always marked. You see, when you study the Bible, you see times when God came to a people like the Ninevites. Jonah came and cried Warning them of judgment to come. And there was a profound conviction of sin. Profound weeping. Profound contrition. Confession before God. You studied the death Pentecost. And they were again smitten in their hearts. The word is preached. And they were pricked in their hearts. Acts too. What? What shall we do? It's a burden. And so it is in the times of the Reformation. The evangelical awakenings, the great awakenings, 1859, the Wallace revivals, there was contrition and confession. Heart sins were exposed. Not only those things that were public, but there's a, a recognition of the depth of depravity within our hearts. That's what happens when God comes in revival blessing. The word of God is read and expounded and the people respond in sorrow and in the fear of God. Now I say this because we must be careful to rightly discern the times. We may hear in some circles, in some countries, of, of so-called revivals. We hear perhaps of charismatic churches that are seeing great growth and perhaps even claiming that we're revival. But if there is true revival, then these two marks will always be present. The word of God and the preach of the word takes prominence and there is deep, lasting conviction of sin. We are, as a denomination, committed to pray for revival. And we should pray for God to revive and awaken, uh, pour out his spirit upon this area. But we must be wise and understand what we're praying for. 
Revival in itself will not be a pleasant experience in its early times. There will be a, a ripping up of our souls, an exposure of our hearts. That's what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 9. We are privileged to have an account in the word of God of a time of religious awakening. The people who are cold and dull, they come to life. They were instructed in the previous chapter to, to know joy. The Feast of Tabernacles demanded that time. It was a time to rejoice in God's goodness. But God was at work in their lives and repentance cannot stay away. They bubble and bubble until the point comes in chapter 9, verse, the verse number 2. And they stand and confess their sins. They're assembled with fasting, with sackcloths, and earth upon them, verse number 1. God is it work in their lives and repentance comes to the fore? There is a recognition that all was not right in their lives. Note when you think about this display of repentance, this sorrow, note that it occurs as the word of God is preached. I've said something of this in uh, the last message regarding the importance of the preaching of the word of God and, and their response in verse number 9 of, of chapter 8. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Yet, in chapter 9, this recurs. Verse number 3, And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God. And again, I think we can, you know, we can see the word read in a broader sense than simply reading the words. Again, chapter 8 gives the template of what it is to read. Uh, they expounded it, they explained the sense. If we understand sin to be transgression of the law of God, then when the law of God is read and expounded, we should see conviction of sin. The law of God is vital. It's used of God to expose the sins in the hearts of his people, to expose the sins in the hearts of those in the world, that they would seek him. We pray. We pray in our prayer meetings for people to know conviction of sins. And yet we are living in days when, as a preacher, we see little signs of deep conviction of sin. And is it the case? The reason is that there is little preaching of the law of God. There have been cycles through history. Periods of time when the law of God has been so preached that there was little preaching of grace. And yet it seems to be the case in the modern evangelical world that there is much, much preaching of grace and little expounding of the law of God. So people are, are just delighting in grace, which is all well and good. But they don't know why they need grace in the first place. They have no understanding of the, the depth of their sins. And so there is this need for the men of God to be faithful in reading and expounding the law of God. Saying, this is what God expects of you as his creature. And when you fall short of that, then you're guilty before him, you're a lawbreaker, and you then need to know mercy and grace. The law is the schoolmaster that leads souls to Christ. Repentance occurs as the law of God is preached. We need God to raise up men who are convinced of preaching the duty of obedience. 
and the guilt of disobedience. This conviction that is a mark of God's blessing comes as the word of God is preached. But also it occurs in a most obvious and outward manner. Look at these first verses. First of all, there is a humbling of self before God. Verse number one. The children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. These were outward signs that indicated inward humility. Now, like all outward signs, they can be mimicked, they, they can be put on, they can be a pretense. But the following verses indicate that they understood what they were doing. They understood that they had sinned against God. And these outward signs, they were the, the manifestation of their, of their conviction. Fasting. A recognition of their dependence upon the Lord. Setting aside the physical to address the spiritual. They understood there was work to be done with God. Now was not a time to feast. Now was a time to fast and do business with the Lord. We noticed before in our studies on fasting that this notion of fasting was one of afflicting self. Almost always it comes with repentance in the Old Testament. Fasting. And there was also the sackcloth then. This marked profound sorrow. A humbling of self and wearing the humblest of clothing. Uh, you read the account of Jacob. When he hears of the death of Joseph, he rents his clothes and puts sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. This putting on sackcloth, it was an indication of mourning, of humility, of a humbling of self. And then you have this matter of the earth. They put earth upon themselves. Yeah, this is an interesting, uh, interesting detail given to us uh, by Nehemiah here. The word earth is the word for ground. It is the word Adam. Uh, it refers to the ground from which Adam came. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And the read of Daniel setting his face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fastings and sackcloth and ashes. And that's the idea here. It's, it's, a, it's a reflection whereby the people, in an outward sense, they mark their mortality. They show the fact that they are creatures before God and creatures of Adam, fallen creatures. But all of this together, it shows us that repentance, it is shown in a humbling of self. The people of God are humble themselves. True repentance cannot arise in a heart that denies accountability to God. Is there any wonder there's no repentance today where there is no fear of God? There is no view of God as creator and sovereign? Uh, and thus, there's a, a casting away of, of any responsibility to God? God is on the throne. Man is not upon the throne. And yet, as a, as a Western world, we are marked by nothing less than deep-seated pride. God in his mercy brings many disasters upon our nations. And yet there is no turning to God. Now I don't pretend to understand all of God's workings and providence. But over the course of time, God has brought various things to bear upon the Western world. And the response has always been, we will be able to fix it. We can sort out the problems. 
There was, of course, a great global collapse of the Western economy. And the response was not to turn to God and confess their materialistic pride. It was to try to solve the problem themselves. Deep-seated pride. If God was to bring revival, that pride would be replaced with deep humility. Oh, that God would give us a hunger for such days. A burden for such days that we would really set our hearts to pray for God to come and revive a blessing. There is this humbling of self. There's also a separating of the seed unto God. Verse number two. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers. Reference here being made to the stranger. Now, those who were living amongst the community of God's people, yet they were not worshippers of God. Now, provision was made in the old covenant system for those to convert from paganism to Judaism. And that's not the people in view here. These are people who held to false gods and worshipped them. You see, repentance is a recognition of sin, but it's also a recognition of false gods. Therefore, true repentance will be found in a separation from the sins of this world and from all false religion. There is not true revival, there is not a true awakening when those who profess to know that awakening are content to live in a fallen world and are content to worship with false religion. That's not true revival. When there's true revival, there will be separation. Separation from false religion. Separation from the ecumenical movement. Separation from all idolatry. Separation from the world and its sins. It is a fearful thing when those profess to walk with God and yet desire to get as close to the world as they can rather than fleeing from every appearance of evil. But now to be a fundamentalist is to be, uh, again, somewhat unthinking. To be too strict and too severe, even to be legalistic and pharisaical. But when God works in his people, there is such a hatred for sin. There's a separation from all that is false. And again, may God give us a burden for such days. There is also a confessing of, a confessing of sin before God. Verses 3 and 4. They stood up in their place and they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. They acknowledged that their miserable condition was due to their own sins. But they also give thought to the sins of the previous generation. Verse 30. Again, we've made mention of it already. Uh, they recognize that their fathers would not give ear to the words of God. And yet you see in verse number 33. Where when the people who return from captivity reflect upon the ways of God. They say, thou art just in all that is brought upon us. For thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Again, there is again, a biblical wisdom in, in this perspective. This people, they, they were a covenantal people. There was a, a continuity in and through the families. Therefore, it was right for them to reflect upon the sins of their fathers. But they did not allow the sins of the fathers to excuse their own responsibility. 
You see it today, don't you? You see, oh, whenever uh, some poor young person falls into deep sin, there's always a desire to explain it, to look back to their heritage and their family and their upbringing and all the rest. And that's all part of the story. I understand that. But we must never allow the sins of our forefathers to excuse our own sins. We've got to confess and come before God honestly. We ought to see, yes, that our present distress, perhaps as a nation, our present distress has much to do with the sins of a previous generation. A previous generation that promoted and legalized abortion. They were happy to put a blind eye to the murder of countless of unborn children. We cannot expect to know the blessing of God in light of such a heritage. And yet we ourselves must come and say, Lord, we acknowledge our own sin before thee. For thy name's sake, pardon my iniquity. For it is great. And yet when the people of God confess their sin, it does not keep them from the Lord. Verse 3 says, they confess and worship the Lord their God. Sometimes we believe that to be forgiven, we must know profound sorrow for an extended period of time so that we can then earn God's forgiveness. I haven't been sad long enough for God to forgive me. And what's that? That's Protestant works. Because those who know the sort of sin, they must not stay there. Sorrow that does not lead to repentance is not honoring to God. God would have us know sorrow that leads to repentance. And the repentance is joined with faith so that when they confess their sins, they also worship the Lord their God. And they lay hold upon the mercy of God. Verse 31, nevertheless for thy great mercy's sake. And they cry upon God. They worship God as they confess their sins. And so when God comes and revives his work, it comes with this profound sorrow, a display of repentance that comes as the word of God is preached and that occurs in a most obvious outward manner. Whenever... God brings conviction of sin to your hearts, it will produce profound change outwardly. A running from sin, a running to Christ, and a running after righteousness. Those are the marks of those who know this profound sorrow of sin. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.